This week's episode is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. That's it, a thing. It is a thing. Uh, that... Th- <laughs> <laughs> did I throw you off a little bit? You did, yeah. <laughs> you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> I, I did not. Uh, Those three little words. <laughs> Disarmed. <laughs> yes. This week's episode will be with Casey and myself. Good old Casey. Yes, not Katie. Yeah, See we ya. Did, we never did say this is the Nerdbook Review. We'll do that with Kate. I'll do that with Casey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Anyways. Um, but <laughs> before we get into Cameron and Casey doing the thing with the, the books and the, the words. And the reviewing and whatnot. Go ahead and feel free to like Cameron's Twitterings that he he does out there. Yes, at Nerdbook Review. Also, my like my Facebook page, not my group, my page. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. it. Uh, you can contact us as well at. Well, did you say what your page is? You got to say what your page is. Nerdbook review. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Like, I don't even know where I'm at now. Just okay. Just go ahead with your email, man. We you got an email. All right, my email nerdbookreview at gmail.com <laughs> just send an email to at gmail.com <laughs> and see what happens oh no uh, so nerdbookreview at gmail.com and also we would love it if you would be so kind as to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to this uh, yeah. it kind of I understand iTunes makes it really difficult for you to review things but we'd love it if you'd put in a little bit of effort. <laughs> we put in a lot of effort. So I mean, Katie's read at least almost half of the books that we've done on this podcast. So I mean, far. at least almost half. <laughs> that so, doesn't even count the ones that I skip because I'm, I have to read the next books in the series. That's true. <laughs> yes. In fact, right now I am almost begging Katie to read the next book that I want to review. He's begging me to stop rereading a series <laughs> that I've read before. Yeah. And I just, I can't remember every little detail and I feel like I need to know every detail and the, the series isn't done yet. And when they're not completed, I feel like... It's kind of like the song of Ice and Fire thing where like you always find something mm. that could reveal stuff. True. There's always little foreshadowings. I've highlighted so much this time around. Yes. All right. So now that we've rambled on for several minutes, we yeah. are going to get into uh, the review with It's not Casey. like Casey's going like, to take that much time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This book is going to take a little while. Yeah, well, it, it has can, it some can be twists longer. and turns. It can be longer to make up for the last. Okay. Not a big deal. Yep. Hello, hello. Red Eye? All right. Well, today we have Case P returning after his successful-ish first podcast skit. Stit? Foray. Foray. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. How you doing tonight? Doing pretty good. Just uh, ate some decent pasta. Yeah. That, that the host made is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I always try to make dinner for all of my guests. Uh, you're probably never going to see a dime because even if I do somehow make money on this, it's the only way I can get people over here. Yeah, as long as you cut me in pasta form, I'm good. Fair enough. Fair enough. So tonight, Casey and I will be reviewing The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Let me give you guys a little bit of book info and the stats and all that good stuff. So this book was published in 2006. 
It is 499 hardcover pages long. It is the first in the series that currently has, that has three books and three novellas, with four more name books planned in the series. He says he plans on having another series of seven books set in the same world a generation after these books at some point, so apparently you have uh, about another 11 books to look forward to if you like this series. Uh, he published the first two books rapidly, then had a long hiatus between the second and third as he dealt with some personal issues. Uh, he also has an online-only fantasy novel that he writes entirely on his website. There we are. Those are good facts. Those are facts. <laughs> and deets. Casey, would you do us the uh, honor of reading the Goodreads book cover blurb? Sure. It's uh, pretty long. Oh, God, it really is long. So, here we go. In this stunning debut, author Scott Lynch delivers the wonderfully thrilling tale of an audacious criminal and his band of confidence tricksters. Set in a fantastic city pulsing with the lives of decadent nobles and daring thieves, here's a story of adventure, loyalty, and survival that is one part Robin Hood and one part's Ocean Eleven, and entirely enthralling. An orphan's life is harsh and often short in the island city of Camor, built on the ruins of a mysterious alien race. But born with a quick wit and a gift for thieving, Locke Lamora has dodged both death and slavery, only to fall into the hands of an eyeless priest known as Chains, a man who is neither blind nor a priest. A con artist of extraordinary talent, Chains passes his skills on to his carefully selected family of orphans, a group known as the Gentleman Bastards. Under his tutelage, Locke grows to lead the Bastards, delightedly pulling off one outrageous confidence game after another. Soon he is infamous as the Thorn of Kamor, and no wealthy noble is safe from his sting. It's long. Passing themselves off as petty thieves, the brilliant Locke and his tightly knit band of light fingered brothers have fooled even the criminals' underworld's most feared ruler, Barsavi. But there is someone in the shadows more powerful and more ambitious than Locke has yet imagined. Known as the Grand King, he is slowly killing Kappa Basavi's most trusted men and using Locke as a pawn in his plot to take control of Kamor's underworld. With a bloody coup underway threatening to destroy everyone and everything that holds a meaning to his mercenary life, Locke vows to beat the Grand King at his own brutal game or die trying. The end. And since we just gave the entire book, there's really no uh, need for us to do a review. But one thing with this blurb already out there, uh, it takes away some spoilers that I might, well, the ones that I might have to say are spoilers, you know? Yeah. But, uh, it's all out there anyways. So, today mine will truly be the short one. A group of thieves, known as the Gentleman Bastards, rob the rich through a series of elaborate plots. When the Grey King shows up, everything is thrown into disarray. How they deal with their various plots, as well as the Grey King, will determine the future of the island city of Camor. Done. Good and quick, huh? That was amazing. It was. Well, what'd you think, man? What did I think? Um, in the in the last episode we did together, I was talking about how I love, uh, you know, kind of killing machine type novels. Mm-hmm. And while that's true, uh, a lifelong interest of mine in movies and, and books and stuff has been con men, confidence men. And so uh, this really kind of hit a sweet spot with me so <laughs> nice. i really liked it I, I thought it was fun good good so we're gonna go ahead and get into a little bit of our thoughts on the book itself this book has more twists and turns than a game of snake i know that's ridiculous but the other day i sat and watched 
the video on Facebook of someone actually beating Snake. So I was thinking of that when I... <laughs> no, it could be beat. Apparently it can, actually, yeah. Mm. So um, I read the first two books in the series like five or six years ago. Um, and while I remember like the broad story, I was... There was still a ton of stuff I'd forgotten and like some twists and turns that... Like this was like reading a new book all over for me because of how much happens. I was, I was going to ask you if you read it again, but it looks like you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read it just like a week or two ago now, so... Mm. The the world that Lynch has created is definitely dark and dirty. Um, the nobles live in Elderglass Towers. Uh, Elderglass is, was left behind by a race of people that we don't know anything about, except that they were already gone when, when humans started inhabiting. They're, uh, they're basically like glass buildings. Like mm-hmm. You can see through them, from, especially from the inside, and they're indestructible. Yep, indestructible. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. yeah indestructible. Uh, what were your thoughts on the story itself, Case? Um, I feel like the part with the Elder Glass, I don't know if it's actually a trope now, but, um, it is something I find kind of interesting in a lot of fantasy books. So I, I mentioned this series a while back. I don't think you've read it. The Unhewn, The Unhewn Throne, I believe it's called. Uh, Yeah, I don't think so. Trilogy. And there's quite a bit of that. In in that series, there's quite a bit of this old world tech that they don't understand. They mm-hmm. don't really get how it's created. And um, as a spoiler to one of the books, uh, he ends up finding a gun. So we know this is like long, <laughs> long after, but it's still set in this this sort of uh, medieval age. Uh-huh. I've only read two books so far, and I know that there's a third one out now. But I still don't remember that Elder Glass, like, any sort of, you know, explanation more in book two that I can remember. So, um, the I guess maybe one day we'll know uh, something about the Elder Glass and, and what it means. We're basically dealing with uh, a medieval tech level, but with a lot of alchemy. Kind of like the Renaissance, but on steroids. What were some of the things? It was like, they make, they make like, liquor-infused fruit, right? Oh, yeah, like that they're having at the... Well, they they can do all sort of... Uh, there is alchemy, but there's it's also sort of a Mitch... Uh, Mitch, wow. <laughs> it's also sort of a mix with uh, botany. Yeah. And so they can create plants that like glow, and there was a, a scene with tea that would like glow in the cup, if you remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the characters says something about, I wonder if it makes such a show on the way out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they basically have, they achieve quite a bit of stuff, like, tech-wise, just with alchemy. I mean, we have, like I said, ever-glowing lights, and the... There's black alchemy, which is what you would imagine. Yes. It's it's poisons, but it also comes to play a pretty significant role in in this story. Yeah. Then we have a mage guild. I I think they actually said the number was, like, right around 400 uh, total in the entire world. I don't know if that meant like in the entire world or just in the kingdoms they know about. Do you know? No, it sounds like they all kind of live together unless they're out um, with somebody uh, buying their their services. Yeah, and their services come incredibly expensive. So they're super expensive. At one point, uh, Lynch talks about how he could bankrupt um, a nobleman if a nobleman were to hire him, um, so especially some of the lesser ones. Mm-hmm. And even the Duke, who's sort of like basically the king of this of Camor, it would 
greatly deplete his his wealth if he were to hire out a, a bonds mage. So they're like Cameron said, extremely expensive. Yeah, and they're not like rulers don't have them uh, sitting by their side like you see in a lot of other stories. That these guys are a guild. And I, I think they could basically rule the world if they wanted to. They're that powerful, but they, it's not what they choose to do. Probably because you'd have to, uh, then they'd have to deal with actually ruling. They're like kind of way that, that that protects them as well is that if you kill one, not only do they come after you, they kill any of your friends and they and they kill your family, like even extended family. They'll just wipe any memory of you out, basically. That's actually going to be an issue that our main character is going to have to deal with as he will have to, you know, actually deal with a Bonds Mage at one point. Well, and just as kind of a sidestep a little bit, they became a Mage Guild out of war, which I just thought we should note. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they are sort of like uh, Luxembourg or Vatican City or something. They they are unto themselves. They're not at the beck and call of anybody. But, you know, they got there through blood, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, they wiped out the remnants of the empire that uh, the, the man-made empire before them. So, like, this world is definitely um, a little, like I said, dark and dirty. The poor people are really poor. They live in slums. And then the uh, nobles, like the high nobles, live in those elder glass towers we were talking about. Uh, then the other ones still live in, you know, big mansions. And there doesn't seem like there's a ton of a middle class. It seems like you're either rich or poor, basically. Yeah, and, and if there is a middle class, it's the uh, ladies of the night, probably. Yeah, they did manage to... Uh, Establish their own uh, services at some point, so they're kind of one of the gangs. So that we said the poor live in slums, and they're run by a series of gangs, who I will pay tribute to Captain Barsavi. He's like the head man that united everybody when he was younger. And so then the secret peace basically keeps the nobles and the rich people safe, and everyone else is then uh, subject to being stolen from or whatever. But uh, the nobles, they're okay with that. Like we said, they're not exactly trying to help anybody out for the most part. Right. And, they just uh, want to live in luxury and yeah. let the street people do what they will. Yeah. Like we said, with that alchemy and things that they can do, for you know a low-tech place, they have some pretty big luxuries being rich. Um, the uh, elder glass towers stay like a normal cool temperature even during the, the really hot summer. And, uh, and they have... Uh, kind of trolleys or cages that move between the elder glass i mean even metaphorically in in a very real way <laughs> are the rich above the poor in this, yeah in this don't park. have to set foot on the, the super rich don't have to set foot on the ground if they don't need to one thing also uh i guess we should probably talk about kimor because it's a uh, character in itself it's not something that just barely talked about it everything about it is important i don't know i thought venice that's probably what they're trying to portray yeah. Yeah. yeah, when I was reading up on this book, that that was the uh, that was the reference I kept using, and and I haven't been there, but from what I know about it, with all the canals and and everything, I don't know. It seemed like Venice to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually I was there this summer, one of our stops. Yeah, I mean, you really have to take a really expensive boat anywhere you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> you Not can, just a gondola. Yeah, no, though the gondolas were like a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah, but and then it's really hot in Camor. That's kind of something that uh, that's why that elder glass matters too. And it's something that like the hotter the times are, the more likely people are to riot. You know, just like here. Well, I was, I was gonna say yeah, like 
right out of uh, our chapter here. I mean, that's exactly what happens. Violence always surges in the summer. Yeah. Casey, why don't you talk a little bit about the Gentleman Bastards and and, uh, what they are. The story starts with the titular character, Locke Lamora. And he's in kind of a small gang, but he keeps having incidents (laughs) that are... uh, consternating to the person that is kind of running his gang right now so that he brings him to uh, a priest named chains and chains hmm, he is a priest but he isn't a priest in the way that we think of priests yeah so he takes lock lamora in and he he kind of tells him what what the gig is is that uh they steal they pickpockets they put themselves in disguise they they uh have capers all over town basically and they make as much money as they can yep and another big thing with them is that did you mention they secret they they break the secret piece well yeah he does but yeah no i didn't okay like kind of their thing is too is that they secretly break the secret piece they don't let anyone else know that they're robbing from the rich but they are also robbing from the rich, and that's kind of like a going to be one of the big uh, storylines in this as they're trying to steal from one of the more influential families. And so uh, when Locke comes and starts to live with Chains, there's also uh, there's already a set of twins, the Sansa twins, and uh, there's a girl, Sabatha, who is only mentioned probably four or five times yeah, in probably. this book. And so we don't know much about her except for later on it's pretty much spelled out that Locke's in love with her and they had some sort of relationship. And then uh, later comes Gene Tannen, who's a big burly guy with a very bad temper. He uh, Very smart, though. Yeah, very smart. He was from a rich merchant family. And when they're still young, he gets sent off to to learn how to fight. So he'll be the tough one of the gang, the enforcer. Mm-hmm. The Sansas kind of uh, run, uh, obviously, quite a few of their uh, con games based on there being two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to, uh, I guess, disguises are really their, that's their big thing. Like, their part in the gang, I guess, for the most part, right? Um. Well, I think it actually mentions them being card sharps more than oh, okay. than that. But at one point, Chains is talking to Locke Lamar, and I think maybe Gene at the same time. And he tells uh, Locke that the Sansa twins are are silver at almost everything. Oh, yeah. And Locke is gold at coming up with plans. And yep. Yeah, I forgot about that. I do remember that now, yeah. So they were like even talked about like in a fight they could hold their own even if they weren't the best fighters like Gene was but they're usually going to be able to hold their own whereas Locke he's super smart but no one's going to accuse him of being a brawler. No, he's he seems uh, he's described <laughs> very kind of nondescript like yeah very kind of plain looking uh, of medium like height and build. There's nothing yeah striking about him whereas you have Gene he kind of hulks over people <laughs> and. Uh, it's pretty clear what his role is. Yeah, that is very, very true. Uh, so now we know about the Gentleman Bastards, who are our uh, main uh, characters. Also, one thing I always talk about, too, is his point of views. This is going to be a 
one character point of view for the main storyline, but then have uh, interludes, he, interludes. Yeah, he calls them interludes that like go back on the story and tell like the tale of the kids while they're kids. And uh, since once you know once the main part of the book starts, we're what twenty years past that almost eighteen. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that'll go back and that'll give um, details on uh, Gene as well. And does it give on the Sansas? No, no, I don't think it does. So just Gene? Yeah. So, yeah, it jumps back and forth a bit. And, you know, he does that thing that keeps the pages turning where he lives. He leaves you on a bit of a cliffhanger and then he jumps back in time. So you have to get through that chapter to see how the cliffhanger was resolved or if it was. Or if you were me in this case, to get to the end of a chapter so I could see the interlude because I really enjoyed the interlude mm. when they're when they're kids, you know, like the things that they they went and did. But yeah, he, I think that that's something that we talked about with Katie, the very first episode that she didn't feel like Lawrence used the interludes that he put in with his first series very well, mm. and we loved it with the the Red Sister one, you know. And so um, I think that's something that Katie got me more thinking about than I would have before, you know, because yeah. she cares so much about that interlude. So getting back into that, the the two big storylines are that the first is the long con game that they're playing on a couple of nobles. By that, I mean a husband and wife, since I am a clearly a wordsmith. Yeah, a sort of middling rank. Like, they're towards the upper crust but maybe middle crust yeah yeah so uh yeah they're the upper middle class of the upper class (laughs) um so yeah so they're uh preying on those nobles um they make up a ruse that they represent the premier man premier brandy maker in the world who needs to help move due to a actual very real impending civil war and he's trying to con them into financing that, so basically just giving him money, and he pretends like he's moving the uh, transaction along. Right, and we should mention that um, Locke's in disguise right now as... Um, Lucas Fairright. Yes. <laughs> I, I guess he's not really a noble. He, he'd he be an artisan because he represents the house of Bellester, who makes all the... The world-renowned uh, brandy that Cameron had mentioned. Yeah, I think they said even, like, the Duke only has a cask or two, probably. It's so expensive. Right, and when he was meeting with this noble couple, he he was kind of bandying it about, and he had one open like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so then they're like, oh, God, someone, if they're willing to spend, you know, do that, then it must be legit. Basically, they just, they play into the nobles' uh, opinions of how, you know, the stratified uh social classes should be they don't think that someone that was poor or a thief would be you know would be like that that's how they they, he looks like what he's supposed to look like right and then the second like big thread in this is that the gray king who we don't know a lot about is trying to overthrow uh kappa barsavi Um, and the gentleman bastards are going to get caught up in this because the bonds mage that we were talking about who um is being employed by the gray king Clearly, Grey King has some resources that we don't know anything about for most of the book. Um, but because of that um, Bonds Mage and the game that the Gnome you know, Bastards are, are playing, clearly showing a lot of skill, they're going to get thrown into uh, Barsavi and their Grey King's war because of that. 
Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just getting into like the big the, for me, some of the like the things was the the storyline super complex. And the pace is very fast. I just didn't feel like there was any uh, like lull in the in the book, you know, where where nothing happened for a long period of time. Did you have that feeling at all? No, there was always something going on. Yeah, like, whether it's Locke uh, coming up with their next move, or somebody dying, or being poisoned. Yeah, yeah. there was always something. Yeah, afoot. he had a five hundred page book that if he had wanted to throw in a bunch of useless words, could have been seven or eight hundred pages. Yeah, pretty easily. Yeah. You know what I wrote down here is is that the outline I would have had to require to keep this stuff straight in my head would have had to be a novel in itself. I mean, he juggles a ton of stuff in this book, and he juggles it successfully, I think. Yeah, and although there are two threads of the story, I mean, this is what Cameron, I think, was just alluding to, is that, of course, they all, they all come together, and I think they meld pretty well. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like two stories that were kind of sloppily dashed together. It seemed well orchestrated. I think that in movies this happens a lot. Two people will be getting conned into each other, and then like oh. the way a movie will meld together, all of a sudden like they'll both be on the cell phone or something thinking they're meeting up at the same, you know, right. and run into each other and be like, oh, we just got conned, you know? So like very contrived. Yeah, I feel like that, well, that was clearly not what happened here. No. And so... um. What else, what, did you, what else would you like to talk about like with the book itself? I think that you can talk about a ton of this stuff. Um, we could make this a two-hour book review and really not give out too many spoilers, you know? I. But if you were trying to get someone to read this or not read it, what would you think? Oh, well, I was going to say that I, uh, I was surprised almost immediately starting this book on how well it's written. The The prose is it's very nice. It's... It's effective, but it's, you know, it's descriptive where it needs to be, but without a lot of, you know, overly flowery or gilded sort of language. So an economy of words in a good way. Kind yeah. Of, kind of what Cam said earlier. Yeah, like it could be 800 instead of 500 and you wouldn't be, it'd still be a good book. Right. And uh, just one brief kind of out of nowhere thing, because I was watching a episode of Forensic Files and this guy um, was on there and he was talking about how he's like, so like he'll read ransom demands mm-hmm. and, and those kinds of things and try to get an idea about the person. He brought up this um, in relation to a case, but he called it, um, I'm going to forget now. It's called the idiosyncratic repetition, Okay, I believe. Yeah. And I noticed it. Um, several times throughout the book, probably four is the number that comes to mind. Uh, there's one very early on, and this just sort of speaks to the the way he writes, which I like this kind of thing. I think a lot of people do too. The one that I can remember offhand is Kappa Barsavi is torturing somebody, and he tells the guy, you let me down, so I'm going to let you down. And when he let the other guy down... It was into some shark or otherworldly uh, monster, uh, watery death. Oh, yeah. So um, I think one thing that you just mentioned that um, a torture scene, like there's this, there's some pretty brutal action that takes place in this this story, and um, Locke Lamar gets his ass kicked like repeatedly. Oh yeah, he really does. The there's some pretty serious language in this story too, and. 
the reason that I bring this up, this is the second time I'm going to reference something. It was like a, it was like one star reviews, and this this site just had a whole bunch of one star reviewed, and they had they had a bunch of them on this uh, book that were like just ridiculous, you know. And almost every one of them was like, I can't believe there was so much foul language. People didn't need such have such a potty mouth. It's like I don't care if these were low class people. They they should they shouldn't need to speak like this in a novel. And I was like, well, that's exactly how people would speak, though. Right, and. I don't know. Maybe I'm just deadened to it, but I didn't really. I didn't. It didn't jump out at me. Like I don't think Locke, who's the main character, I don't. I don't think he really swears that much himself. Um. No. Some in a little bit of a joking way, but it's characters around him that definitely do more of the cursing. Mm. But it's just one thing though that it's funny is is like there is some language, but at the same time. There was actually probably you're right less than I would have expected with some of these reviews. You know. Right, like Cameron was saying, um, I, I really like mob movies too, like Casino, and there is, you know, just a litany of, of vulgar words that they say in there. Somebody brought it up, I think it was my mom, because I was watching it when I was younger, and she said something about it, and I said, how do you think these people really speak to each other? Do you do you think they have a strong filter when it's just them and their <laughs> friends like sitting around, or do you think they speak in a very different manner? Yeah, <laughs> so... Uh... Let's get into our recommendation phase. Like I said, we could keep going on and on about the book, but at this point, we're already like 35 minutes into just talking about the book, so we're going to get to our uh, recommendation phase on the did we like it? Um, How did it make us feel and all that good stuff? Uh, I think it's pretty clear from what I've been saying that I loved the book. I loved all the twists and turns. I thought it was well-written. Like Casey said, it got the the words on paper in a an elegant way, but not an unneedlessly flowery way. Um, and the city of Camor really came to life for me. Uh, it didn't. Well, one thing like with the city though is I didn't feel like even if I didn't necessarily know where a, an individual thing was, it was a big deal. I just kind of in my mind, you know, thought I was going from one way to another. But it being just one city, I don't. You know, it's not a big deal that they're not flowing all the way around the world in this one so Kimor really came to life at me or for me I wouldn't put it quite on Jemison in terms of uh, emotional but it's way more fun this is just a straight up Ocean's Eleven style book to me that I mean in terms of I love the Ocean's Eleven and I love the action and the pace and this this you is you love Brad Pitt oh he's a dreamboat uh, and I joke when I I kind of almost sounded derogatorily when I earlier said that there's eventually going to be like 14 books, only because I think about the fact that it's going to take me 30 years before I get those 14 books. Makes you sad. Yeah, it makes me sad because I loved this, and I look forward to reading every single book in the series. So uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I'm I'm not sure if I'm on the love level, but I really did like it um, because it's, you know, like I was talking about, it's, it's a con game. And uh, I really, I don't know why, I, I really <laughs> feel an attachment to those sorts of games. Um, and I thought the characters of Locke, even Chains and Gene were, were done really well. The Sansa Twins to me were kind of almost throwaway characters. Or it was like one character that was like... <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, you know, they'd speak in unison and they were uh-huh. always together. It just it seemed more like one person to me than two. Uh-huh. 
And there there was a, another character that we forgot to mention who's Bug, who's... Oh, God, yeah, he's, I mean, a pretty big character in the second part. Yeah, he's, he's an important character, and he, he's, a, he's a young guy. He's got um, probably a worse mouth than anybody. Mm-hmm. And he does their, their Overwatch sort of uh, on some of the capers. And so anyway, um, I thought that most of the characters were fleshed out in such a way that like I, I could see them. I kind of knew what they were about. Uh, some of the other characters I didn't really get into much, mm-hmm. like uh, Barsavi's daughter. Like, mm-hmm. She's brought up, and there's this kind of weird thing that happens when he's younger, and then she gets brought up again. But, she again, she feels kind of like a throwaway character to me. I, I can actually agree with you on that. I think she was probably the, the least fleshed out. Like, for what it seemed like in the prologue, like that she would play a huge role. Right. And then she definitely doesn't play a huge role. Which, I mean, I guess the argument could be made that there's sort of auxiliary characters, and you have to have some of those who certain things are going to have to happen mm-hmm. to um but even like Barsavi, he wasn't like a huge character he's a big character but like for whatever reason i was able to imagine him much better than i could some of the other people i saw daniel day lewis in uh, gangs of new york in my head with Barsavi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> with bigger the, with the with yeah but bigger but with the i don't know that's just how i imagined him i know he said he had the chins yeah. Chins plural by this point, but so um, Casey, would you recommend it to other people? Yeah, I don't think I'd have any reservations uh, recommending it to people. And one of the good aspects of this, if you know, if you're that kind of person, is that there are some elements of fantasy, definitely, but um, not necessarily throughout the whole book. I mean, there's a large swaths of this book that are just kind of people interacting people trying to pull something out on somebody else i mean a lot of it is relatively kind of just normal if that makes sense yeah i guess for being a total fantasy book it's not the kind of fantasy book that needs to uh get people off of it if that's something that they're not a big huge fan of um you probably already are a fantasy fan if you're listening to this podcast but if uh your mom happens to be sitting next to you on accident (laughs) you can say (laughs) you could uh you could have the, her read this, and if as long as she's into like the crime stuff, um, she doesn't have to get past orcs and goblins and things like that. Right. Huh. Armies of skeletons walking around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get to, we always do the five-star rating system. Casey, what did you think? Um, I'm going to give it a 4.75. Oh, there you are. So, very close to five. Um, it hit a lot of the things I do like, but I felt at times it was a bit of a, I don't know, not a struggle, but like, I just, I lost interest a little bit more in this book than, Did you? than I normally do. Oh, well, there you are. But you still, uh, still a 4.75. So, I mean, for you, I'm going to take it. If Yeah, it's, maybe it was just my own pacing of reading speed, but yeah. 4.75 works. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give it a five star. And the reason I'm going to give it a five star is Shocking. that... What? Shocking. Five star. <laughs> hey, I've given less five stars lately, okay? I'm starting to be, feel like more like a real uh, reviewer who feels like I, it's necessary for me to... Uh, 
have some opinion. Have some opinion <laughs> and some sort of uh, integrity. I mean, uh, I don't have a lot of integrity in life, but uh, you know, shoot this. for the stars, buddy. <laughs> so I'm gonna give it the five star because I still enjoyed it so much, and this was my second read through. I didn't find even on this second read through that I was like, oh, I'm just going to skip this whole section because I've read it and I remember it, you know. Yeah. I felt like I, I wanted to give it the entire uh, read through again. The last thing um, that we always talk about is who the main audience is and who should and shouldn't read it. I felt like it was definitely an older teen and adult kind of novel. Um, it has a lot of brutal torture scenes. Um, there's not a lot of sex I don't, I mean, there's some dirty jokes, but I don't think there's, there's hard, really... There's, like, no sex Yeah, no all. sex. There's some dirty jokes. But, uh, I mean, maybe I'm not a good American, American, <laughs> because I feel like violence as opposed to sex is what should give something a harder uh, rating, you know? And so that's why I would uh, consider this more of an older teen to adult type novel for myself. Casey? Uh, I would skew it a little bit younger... I, I think if if kids are looking for this book for whatever particular reason because they like fantasy fantasy or whatever it's not like they're already gonna jeez I can't even think they're already inundated with so much worse that they've probably seen just flipping through the internet the last time they were online <laughs> on Reddit <laughs> right and like without even trying to you see some pretty horrific stuff on the internet and. You know, I'm not trying to say kids should just keep down that sort of path, but I think, um, I don't know, I would say post-pubescent mm-hmm. on up. Okay. Uh, definitely probably not sitting in the young adult uh, novel section, though. Uh, basically, if you like a darker fantasy where the good guys aren't necessarily really the good guys, and there's a ton of twists and turns, I think you're going to like this. And uh, something that I didn't even think about at all before uh, Casey said this, if you don't love high fantasy, then you're still going to love this because the, you're not dealing with the elves and goblins and stuff like that. You're still dealing with a pretty Earth-like world, even if the uh, geology is a little different. Yep. Agreed. All right, KSP, what, anything you would like to say in uh, at the end here? No, Go. not really. I was trying to... I was thinking on the way over here, like, if I could come up with sort of what the theme of this book might be. Uh-huh. And, you know, I just started thinking about artificial, um, you know, wearing disguises and that sort of thing and sometimes wanting to feel like other people. And one other thing I I think we glossed over or we didn't even mention was that these guys kept stealing long after they needed to. Like, they were pretty much fabulously wealthy, had (laughs) as much or more money than than some of the nobles. Yeah. But they kept doing it anyway. Which sort of, I don't know. I was I was thinking about that too, about um, sort of playing the role that we're supposed to be playing and how that worked in this book with again all the disguises and stuff. Mm-hmm. But also these guys remaining gentlemen bastards, remaining sort of the civil thieves in a mm-hmm. way, and you know they're just kind of playing their part by stealing from the rich, just like you know the small middle class gets uh, stolen by from pickpockets. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah. But one thing, what we got to make sure, they are not Robin Hoods. They're not stealing their gold from the rich and giving it to the poor. It goes into the vault. Yes. 
I think that like they said that maybe only one or two nobles and the duke were richer than them, probably. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're not doing anything with it, even since they're supposed to be a poor little gang. They have all their cool disguises and stuff, but they don't have uh they're certainly not out uh living it up on the town. But it does make make you think like at some point they must ask themselves some sort of like existential question about like what are we doing? Like why do we keep doing this? What what's the end game? <laughs> and maybe that's part of that answer is in, you know, the rest of the series. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Well, I guess we're gonna find out. So, uh, thanks again for coming over tonight again, Casey. Thanks for uh, eating my dinner. And uh, <sighs> eating my dinner. <laughs> last time, uh, I don't think you ate dinner, but I drank my dinner last. You drank time. your dinner last. Time. Okay. So, uh, anyways, uh, enjoyed having you over again, and I look forward to having you on again once we uh, figure out what next book we want to read is. Indeed. Indeedio. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. Our next book will be with Barry as the guest. Not me. Not Katie, (laughs) once again. I'm busy, all right? I got books to reread. That's correct. This book, somehow Barry managed to find a book even older than his first one. Better than his second one, though. I thought this was newer. No, this one was the first, the short story. I guess we could say the book. Oh, it's the next one he wants to do this newer. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this I one, I guess we could we could always just say, it is Revolt in 2100 by Robert Heinlein. The, you said it right that time. I did. I did. I actually went to the Heinlein Society, and they're they very clear on how you pronounce it. I've told it. you multiple times. I know, but I don't trust you. I mean, it's sad that I know more than you. <laughs> Why? I, this is the first book I've ever read by this guy. I've never read a Heinlein book. No, but you dated a guy who used to read them. Yeah. Well, so? there you are. <laughs> <laughs> so I apparently have a type. Apparently. Apparently. Uh, Revolt in 2100, actually a series of short stories that were put into a novel in 1953, four years before Stars My Destination. Were our parents even born yet? Ooh, no, neither of our parents. In fact, the first, the short story, the first one in it was written in 1939. Nice. So I'm not even certain my grandparents were. Actually, I'm pretty sure my grandparents. Well, they would have had to be born, right? Yeah, I think my grandpa's 78. Uh, my grandma does say that she remembers. Actually, both my grandparents remember uh, having to ration during World War II. So they clearly were old enough. Old enough to have, you know, during that period of time. So, uh, once again, Barry will be our next guest. And uh, Revolt in 2100 by Robert Heinlein. Please rate and review us and contact us at the various places that we have asked you to contact us before. Yeah, also, if anyone has advice, so I have this Goodreads book challenge that you have to read a certain amount, but I keep rereading books. I'm not going to meet it. Actually, I said it pretty low. I might meet it. What do you do when you just reread books? It's not fair. I'm still reading. Tell me. I need help. You read new books. I'm doing that too. Yeah. But I've read like 10 books this year that are rereads. That's true. I love to reread. You do. It's like watching a movie again. But it takes way longer. (laughs) (laughs) So much more time. (laughs) So much more time. Advice. I need it. Alrighty. Contact me on Twitter or Facebook. And even though it's mostly me, I will get that info to Katie. Have a good one. Have a good week.